thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we continue our study of the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 16. Last week, we've seen, we've studied chapter 15, which is a very important chapter because this is where God appears to Abram in two different ways and gives him these promises. The first one, the promise of the land, and the second one is the promise of an offspring and of descendants so numerous, they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. Very important promise, very important covenant. Remember we said that, uh, in fact, it's, the, the chapter is known as the covenant between the pieces because Abraham cuts those pieces of the animals into two and God passes between them, uh, thereby taking upon himself a curse, saying that, I will take upon myself a curse to make sure that this promise I'm giving you is going to pass, that this land will be yours, and that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And in a fundamental sense, uh, it is a necessary curse, because how could Abraham's descendants be as numerous as the stars when we know, for a fact, that all of humanity is under the curse of original sin, which means that all of humanity truly is under the influence of the devil. Hence, there can be no real descendants that could survive beyond death, that could really live in heaven and be called the descendants of, of Abraham unless that original curse is broken. Naturally, this is not something that Abraham would have seen at the time. It would take the revelation of Jesus Christ for it to become clear. But in hindsight, when we look back, we see already the plan of God at work through Abram. And now that plan in chapter 16 takes on a twist. So this chapter is really the birth of Ishmael. Why don't we then read this chapter? Uh, fairly short, uh, 16 verses, I believe, in total. Yeah. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived for ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, 
May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, with his hand against everyone, and everyone's against, hands against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are Elroy. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore, Ishmael, bore him Ishmael. The chapter is naturally divided into two parts, verses 1 through th 6, during which we see that um, uh, Sarai gives Hagar to Abram, and then verses 7 to 21 where uh, Hagar runs away and then comes back and Ishmael is born. Uh, this is a short chapter, but it presents a number of difficulty, difficulties for us on many planes, not the least of which the notion of giving another woman to your husband to bear uh, a, uh, a, uh, a son, although these days uh, this may not be as difficult as it might have been before because we have the notion of surrogate mothers, and that's exactly what Hagar is. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so why don't we just uh, uh, take it from the very beginning. The first thing we need to, under, to do is connect this chapter with the previous chapter. In chapter 15, God made a, prom, gave a, uh, made a promise. He promised Abram a son. That much we know. But the part that we're missing is that God said nothing about this son being the son of Sarai. He only spoke of Abraham's son, never mentioning Sarai. If you go back and read chapter 15, you will see that Sarai is not mentioned. Yet we know from chapter 11 that Sarai was barren. Now, I'm using this expression, um, I'm quoting this expression because in, in, in the Bible or in, in the ancient um, in ancient civilization, typically when a couple is unable to have a child, uh, the burden is placed on the woman, not because, um, not because of uh, um, any um, sort of um, um, misconception or um, bias towards women, but because the understanding of the ancients of how a child comes to be follows pretty much the understanding of agriculture, right? You plant the seed in the ground, you water the seed, something sprouts. If it doesn't, you have a seed. Most likely than not, it, the ground can't bear the seed. And, and that's the understanding they had of what was going on. 
and hence it followed that um, the, the word of the use barren, right? Coming from agriculture. In essence, they had a, an understanding of biology which is extremely limited. And as a matter, uh, uh, and, and therefore they followed that process. Sarai heard the promise. Now, what is she thinking? It's been 10 years since they arrived to Canaan. 10 years they've been waiting on the Lord. 10 years. And still no children. And now God told Abraham, your descendants. Right? Remember in chapter 15, he told him that uh, his slave will not be his heir. His own son will be his heir. But he didn't say, your son and the son of Sarai, even though more likely than not God implied it. He only said Abraham. So what is, what is she thinking? Right? My husband's going to go find him another woman, and I'm out of the picture. So she gets into panic mode. The, the very first thing I want to point out to you is, up to that point, meaning for the past 10 years, Sarai did not feel insecure. She didn't feel the necessity of taking on this step. When did she feel that it was important for her to do what she's doing? After God spoke to Abraham and made that promise. You know, we, we, again, we have, oftentimes, we have this very naive view of revelation, particularly private revelation. Secretly, we, we may wish that God may come to us and speak to us in private, because most often than not, we really don't know what we're asking for. Why? Because we think that when God comes and speaks to us, it will be like we speak to a friend. He will say things that we'll completely understand. It'll be very, very clear. It'll make perfect sense, and then we'll be very happy. But Scripture shows us that it is seldom the case that God will speak so clearly that we understand it. Exactly what He says. More often than not, God will say the bare minimum, the very bare minimum, and God will widen our horizon beyond our point of comfort. In every case, when you, when you hear or when you read or study private revelation, you will see that the seer who receives the revelation is not comfortable with it. They don't know what to do with it. So, for instance... Uh, consider Lord. Where did Our Lady appear? In a grotto, right? Most people who don't know the the full story think, oh, and, you know, it's kind of romantic, a grotto or something. But what is missing is that that grotto was in an area, it's called, the, the, in fact, the Grotto of Masabiel. It was in an area that was used as a dump. Okay, so how would you feel if Our Lady were to appear in a, in a place that's close to a dump? So let's assume today, some people might think that if Our Lady were to appear in San Diego, she would appear in the shrine right here. But she may appear actually downtown San Diego or something. So there is a level of discomfort, physically speaking. For Bernadette, it was really strange. And then the demand, I want you, I want a shrine built here. It's not easy to do. Right? Those things are not easy. And likewise, in the case of uh, Fatima, the three little kids, Right, the, third, uh, the, the third secret of Fatima, if you've read it, and I encourage you to read it, it's been published now, it makes, you cannot understand it. 
That's why three popes read it and put it back in place, because they couldn't understand it either. It was only after the event, when John Paul II was shot, that suddenly that prophecy started to make sense. So sometimes a private revelation may have or can have the opposite effect. It can lead us to do things we're not supposed to do. It's not an easy thing to handle private revelation. It's, it's actually a really tough thing to handle. And take it from Moses. He knew. He was a smart man. What? Me? Go talk to Pharaoh? No, no, no. I stutter. I got a speech impediment. I can't speak right. Find somebody else. He knew what he was getting himself into. And he wanted to, nothing to do with it. Right? And that's why he was the perfect instrument. Right? Because... Usually, the ones who really want private revelations, those are the ones who should not receive them. And the ones who really don't want them, those are the ones that should receive them, should God wish to do so. So watch here what happens. She hears this, and she panics and decides to take action. Now, she had the slave girl, Hagar, which, is a, which was Egyptian. The narrator inserts that. He didn't have to. Usually, He's very, the narrator is very um, short on detail. But here he inserts the fact that she is Egyptian. Why do you think he's doing that? Why does he want to point out that she's Egyptian? Yes, she's part of the world, but I want you to think about it in relationship to chapter 15, which is obviously the preceding chapter, right? So this is a continuity. Re recall that in Scripture, uh, prior to the Middle Ages, there were no chapters and verses, just a scroll. It was one story, one book that you read, you read continuously. There are no divisions. But we, because of the current division, we tend to sort of get to the end of the chapter, now we rest. Okay, now we, we find, we finished with this, now something new starts. We're going to forget chapter 15, we hit chapter 16, you shouldn't do that. Keep chapter 15 in mind. What did God tell Abraham was going to happen to his descendants in chapter 15? Yes, but what's going to happen to them before they possess the land? Where? Yes. How ironic. He just told Abram that his descendants will be enslaved in Egypt. Did he say Egypt? Not sure. I don't have my Bible with me, but somebody please, please check in ch chapter 15. Not sure it says Egypt. Yes. So some other nation. But they're going to be slaves, right? He just told him, your descendants will be slaves, and they will get free, and they'll come back here, right? And right after this, what happens? Hagar has a, has, a, has a slave, and she decides to give her slave to her husband, and after she treats her harshly. You know, it's a sort of uh, the narrator is placing a mirror. He's placing a mirror to let the, the Jewish nation look at the mirror, and us look at the mirror as well. Oftentimes, it's a lot easier for us to see the sins of others, the injustices that others commit, than it is uh, for us to see our own sins and our own injustices. Right? And in a sense, perhaps, one of the problems that uh, we run into these days with all these uh, reality shows and all these programs that are ex exhibiting the sins of people is that they are conditioning us not to think about ourselves, but really to think about others and to watch the fallout of others. Be very careful with these programs because they're really insidious. 
any of these reality shows that focus on the negative, uh, whether it's, um, what is this show called, um, something about a star or, um, you know, where people go sing and, and uh, they pick a winner or whatever. Uh, pardon? American Idol or the English counterpart of that thing. Not good. Any show that demean people, any show that put down people, any show that laugh at the expense of people, that attack the dignity of human being, is not a good show to watch. Because it's conditioning us, it's conditioning us to enjoy the sufferings of others, which is something we, are, we want to do, we like to do. Remember the Roman circus. Right? These shows are the modern version of the Roman circus. Right? Other shows are far better, like, for instance, this one where they focus on building homes for people who have a problem. I don't know what the show is called. I, forgot the name. I don't watch these things, but uh, it's a show where you ca they come in and remodel the whole house. Well, if you have to watch a show, that's a good one because it, it really focuses on building up people instead of tearing people down. They tear the house down, but they build the family up, which is a good thing. So be careful, be wary of what you are exposing yourself to because it's easy for us. We are very tempted to do this. Be careful with your tongue. Be careful with um, saying, say, speaking ill of someone who is not present. Uh, we tend to do that very easily, very quickly. Uh, be careful of uh, uh, telling someone else something um, you know, about your friend that they don't need to know about. Uh, that's slander, right? Uh, be be careful, especially when you, it's not it's unproven, right? It's not established. It could be slander, right? When you're tarnishing the reputation of someone without the right without proof. So, and last thing, be careful with curiosity. Curiosity is always a vice. It's not a virtue, right? Seeking knowledge is a virtue, and you can tell the difference when you're seeking knowledge to build up someone or something, and curiosity is vain. You just curious, but there is real, no reason for you to know other than the fact you want to. Whereas, whereas seeking knowledge is either part of your job, part of your career, or is part of charity. Right? Very different. Control, curiosity, it's one of those things that are so dangerous because it can lead us astray very, very, very easily, especially on the internet. Especially on the internet when you're clicking and clicking and clicking and you end up clicking on something you shouldn't have clicked on in the first place. Be careful with all of that. So, in the case of Sarai, she acted rashly. Now, Hagar is an Egyptian. Maybe she's one of those Egyptians that Pharaoh gave to Abram when they were in Egypt. In chapter 12, around verse 16, if you recall, when they went down to Egypt, Pharaoh gave them a bunch of animals, but also uh, 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 slaves. She may be one of those. She may be coming from somewhere else. Now, the word Hagar uh, is really close to an Arabic word, Hajar. And Hajar is also the root for Hajara, to leave, to go somewhere, or to, be, to have a nomadic life. And it's very interesting because in the Egyptian Arabic, they don't say uh, je, they say the g. So it would make sense. They would say Hagar, whereas most other Arabic countries would say Hajar, right? So presumably she may also have been a girl who had been living a nomadic life and somehow ended up being in the service of Abram for a number of reasons. Whatever the case may be, she's from Egypt, or at least she's connected to Egypt, and 
she essentially uh, belongs to Sarai. She doesn't belong to Sarai and Abram. She only belongs to Sarai. She is her maidservant. So Sarai owns her. Now, ownership in, in ancient times meant that either because you have uh, no money, you decided to enter into the service of this person, and they now have authority over you, or because of certain rules where you were bought as a, bought as a slave um, due to war, or you were captured, made a slave due to war, etc. Now, being owned by Sarai may not have been a bad thing, because after all, Sarai was a good woman. Generally speaking, Sarai probably treated people around her very, very well. And so Hagar probably had a good life. It was not a bad life. It was not. Don't necessarily assume that every time you hear of a slave in the Bible, that it maps to the cotton slaves in the United States, right? Or the slaves under the Spanish uh, uh, Empire or any other of these empires. Not necessarily. Some of the slaves had really good lives. Uh, Essentially, they were part of the household. And they were treated very well by their masters. So uh, we have to be careful with that. And so probably till at this point, she had a good life. Now, um, and likewise, the fact that um, Sarai decided to choose Hagar to give to Abraham meant that she trusted her. So there must have been some relationship between the two. She was not a foreigner. She was not a stranger in her house. She was someone she trusted and she knew. Key in on how she says it. Because we know from verse 11, uh, from chapter 11, verse 30, that Sarai was barren. However, here she doesn't say she was barren. She says, essentially, Yahweh has locked me up. So she's essentially blaming God that he he is responsible for the fact that I cannot bear children. She's tying that back to what happened in chapter 15. You're going to have a child... I am unable to give you one because God has locked my womb. Therefore, I am going to take action to make sure that this is going to happen. Notice how essentially Sarai has a good intention. But as the expression goes, hell is paved with good intentions. Now, enough to have a good intention. You also have to have good actions. And that's why in, in, in Catholic theology, we always say that the end does not justify the means. You cannot use evil means to achieve a good end. The means themselves must be good. So, for instance, you can't go steal money and give to the poor. Stealing is an evil thing. And hence, you can't say, I want to feed the poor, a good thing, and that justifies the evil I've done. That doesn't work. So, think of, think of now uh, Hagar as being a, um, a surrogate mother. This is the role that she's going to play. That was a role that was fairly well documented in ancient uh, societies. And... Um, We'll get to that in a moment. Now, on the, I, I'm going to be focusing mostly on literal sense, but I think in this specific instance, because of the use that St. Paul makes of this text, it is worth spending a little bit of time on the anagogical sense. Um, um, not, um, yes, anagogical. The sense that has to do with Scripture, with, with, with the church. 
St. Paul reads this text and sees in Hagar and Sarai the two types of cities, the two cities. It is also the, the basis of the work that St. Augustine will write later, right, called the city of God, where he sees two cities, the city of God and the city of man. Hagar represents, in the eyes of St. Paul, the old covenant. Because it is earthly, it is limited, and it is not from the true wife. Isaac and Sarah represent the new covenant, the church. One was only temporary because Ishmael will live with Abram only for a short period of time before he's sent away. And the other is permanent because Isaac is the one who will inherit the, from his father. One was from man, Ishmael. The other is from God, Isaac. And on and on the comparison goes. St. Paul was the first one to notice it and to build on it between the old and the new. Right? The old and the new. And um, St. Cyril Alexandria puts it this way. As in concrete, concrete image, we see here foreshadowed the fact that once the Emmanuel has appeared and his mystery has been shown to the world, the types of the Mosaic cult necessarily disappear, giving way to the evangelical teachings, the better and more perfect precepts. Of what image am I speaking? Because Sarah had not had children, Hagar, after having given birth to Ishmael, began to show arrogant contempt for her owner, the free woman. Sarah was unable to bear that arrogance and began also to mistreat the Egyptian woman. The latter fled from the house and lost her way in the desert. An angel from heaven asked her where she was going and where she had come from. She replied, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the holy angel replied, return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hands. She was ordered then by the voice of the angel not to depart from the free woman, from instruction, that is, which summons to the dignity of free persons, and to humble herself instead under the free woman's hand. The cult according to the law, in fact, which takes place through images and types, is as it were the servant of the evangelical teachings. In it, obscurely, the beauty of the truth is revealed. So what St. Cyril saw is what St. Paul saw, and that's also the foundation, maybe not the foundation, but this is also a cue that he gets from for the conversion of all the Jews. Because the angel tells her, return and submit to your mistress. She, being the old covenant, had fled away from the new, just as the Jews separated themselves from Christianity. They refused Christ. But the angel is saying, return and submit. And therefore, one of the signs that must take place, according to the teaching of St. Paul, before the end of the age, before the end of time, is the conversion of the Jews back to the true faith. Sarai, in verse 1, had a maid. The Hebrew used here, Yilab, really is emphasizing the proprietary right, the right of Sarah, the Sarai, to essentially do with her maid as she pleased. A slave woman or bond woman were considered both property and legal extensions of their mistress. As a result, it would be possible for Sarai to have Hagar perform a variety of household tasks as well as to use her as a surrogate for her own barren womb. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole picture of whether this was right or wrong. This is a much wider conversation. God 
is not the one instigating this. God did not ask them to do that. They're doing it. On the other hand, God is not, uh, is not yet about to judge them over and above their own cultural surrounding. You understand that? So you can't impose on Abraham and Sarai a Christian judgment because they did not have it. You understand what I'm saying to you? That's why it's so important for us to understand the text in its original context. Not take it out of its original context, plant it into a Christian context, and superimpose on top of it our own values. If we were to do that, we completely misunderstand the text and miss the meaning, the meaning that was intended for us. Do you understand that? So, we have to lay aside, as we study this, the question of righteousness. Was, there, was it right for them to own slaves or not? Back then, it was not considered an injustice. It was part of the general trade. Now, I remind all of us that today, in our own century, right, slave trading is alive and doing very well. And the estimated economy surrounding slave trading worldwide is in the billions of dollars. Some, some people even estimate about $200 billion worth of the um, worldwide economy is due to slave trading. It's huge. Okay? So let's keep that aside and focus on what the text wants us to understand. Okay, so I covered the fact that she was an Egyptian and the fact that she was... Um, um, and the name Hagar, what it means. All right, now let's keep on going. Verse 2. Now, contractual arrangement for bareness. Concubines did not have full status of wives, but were girls who came to the marriage with no dowry and whose role included childbearing. As a result, concubinage would not be viewed as polygamy. Okay? In ancient societies, it was concubines were used or were supposed to be used only in situations of bareness, so that you could, you could have children who will then continue for the generation of family. Remember, back then, having children was of essence. It was critical if you were to be able to make certain that someone will be there to take care of you in your old age, right? and so on and so forth. So that was the system put in place. Now, in, in Scripture, it happened a number of times. It happened with Sarah, and then it happened with Leah, and with... Rebecca, and we get to that when, when we, when we uh, get to Jacob. Now, she says in verse 2, perhaps I shall have a son. The Hebrew, Ibane, contains a double entendre. It, it's suggesting both the stem to build, bena, and the word son, ben. In Hebrew, as in Arabic, for, the, for, for, for that matter, because those words really are Hebraic, bena is to build, and ben is to have a son. And um, likewise, the Akkadian, Banu, may mean to build or to engender. And in many cultures, family posterity depicted in terms of a house. So, for instance, in the Psalms, uh, God, actually not in the Psalms, when, uh, when, um, when uh, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, the Lord sends Nathan over to David and tell him, No, you shall not build me a house but I will build you a house. The English masks the word, unfortunately, because what was meant is that um, 
David is saying, I want to build, build you, Bena, a house, bait. Hmm? God says, I want to bend you hmm, a dynasty. So God was saying to him, I'm going to establish your dynasty through your son, and your dynasty will be established forever. David was talking about a house. So those terms are constantly used, and then Sarai is using them here. Um, Although you might say, which is sort of interesting, so Psalm 127, if you wanted to compare, Psalm 127 says, If Yahweh does not build a house, the temple and the house of Israel... The builders, Banim, toil for naught. For sons, Banim, so Banim is the builders and Banim are the sons, are a heritage of Yahweh. So the psalmist suggests clearly that unless God builds, what you're building is for naught. And in a sense, you can see here that Sarai is essentially saying that she wants to build a son. And Psalm 27 is saying, if you build apart from the Lord, you're building for naught. So, in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense, when the church says no artificial insemination, no surrogate mothers, none of that, the church isn't simply saying that, it, that these are not appropriate biological form of bringing forth children. The church is reminding us of the covenant with God. Do not force God's hand. Do not put him to the test. For if you build a family without God building it for you, you're building for naught. Your children shall not be yours. You understand? Our conscience, our biblical conscience is so thin that the scientific argument wipes it out very quickly. Because we tend to be swayed by the glitter of science. Thinking, well, what's wrong with it? They want a kid, they can't have a kid. So what's wrong with them having a kid? Well, that's what's wrong. It's not just up to them. God has something to say with it. But when you force God's hand, you're essentially acting outside of the covenant, and the covenant gets triggered. I'm hope, I hope that as I repeat the, this, these things to you over and over, you're slowly gaining a covenantal view of your own life. Because... Unless and until you gain a covenantal view of your own life and understand how the covenant regulates everything, you will not be able to work on your salvation with fear and trembling. That fear and trembling part that St. Paul told us, work your salvation with fear and trembling, that fear and trembling comes from the covenant. He understood how it, it is used by God. Okay? And that's the conscience we need to develop so we can show God the proper filial love and attitude before His holiness. She wants, verse 2, she wants to have a child through her, meaning through Hagar. So the custom of an infertile wife providing her husband with a concubine in order to bear children is well documented in the ancient Near East. For instance, the laws of Lipit Ishtar, early... 9th century BC, BC, deal with the case of a harlot who produces children for the husband of a barren wife. These becomes his heir. An old Assyrian marriage contract, 19th century BC, stipulates that if a wife does not provide him with offspring within two years, she must purchase a slave woman for the purpose. The provision of a concubine slave for bearing children is taken for granted in the laws of Hammurabi. 
The laws of Hammurabi, in case you're not aware of it, are the first or the most ancient laws we know of that were set to form a civil code of law. For instance, it talks about the protection of the orphan, the protection of the, of the uh, widow, etc. And in these laws, the stipulation for the use of a concubine in order to bring forth children is well documented. Not only that, but also if a concubine were to um, treat her mistress with contempt, there were appropriate punishment that went with it. So these were the customs of the time. This is how they viewed those things. Now, it, might, it, it, it shocks us because of our Christian conscience. Be aware of that. Without our Christian conscience, none of that would shock us. Now, Abraham heeded his wife. There's a really important point here in verse 2, and that is, so, and Sarai said to Abraham, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Going to my slave girl, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Why does the narrator tell us that Abraham listened to the voice of his wife? Why is that indicated there? He didn't want to do that. What does that suggest? No, no, no. It's not about not listening to women. This is a very basic thing. Abraham is not doing it out of lust. He's not driven by lust. You understand? He listened to the, to his, to the voice of his wife. He would not have done it on his own. He was not trying to do that. He wasn't driven by lust. Now, as usual... When a man listens to the voice of his wife and she is not inspired by God, he gets in trouble. I want you to to hear the second part and not forget about it. When she is not inspired by God, he gets in trouble. No doubt that St. Joseph listened to Our Lady in many, many cases. And that made him a greater saint. And this is very important. This is very, very important. This... This is the foundation for happy marriages. This is how marriages last. When the woman's primary goal is to sanctify her husband, when she does everything she can to sanctify him, when she offers sacrifices for him, when she prays to God for him, and when he does everything to sanctify his wife. It is in this reciprocity of love that the couple grows together. And I'm not going to suggest that it is easy. As a matter of fact, when a man and a woman commit themselves to do this seriously, God will allow them to go all the way to the breaking point. Difficulties will arise in their marriage. Misunderstandings. Loneliness, arguments, it will not be easy. The pattern is set before us. Ten years, they've been waiting ten years to have a child and still no child. No different. If God loves you, God will need you. I'm not need you as in needing a dough. In your marriage, your marriage is, you're the dough and your marriage is what needs you what transforms you, and it's going to be hard. But not without grace. Not without grace. So it produces hope. It produces endurance. It produces holiness. It produces wisdom. And then, one of these days, you find that all that 
effort and work and sometimes solitary work because in order for the couple to grow together, they have first to grow closer to God. To grow closer among themselves, they have to grow closer to God because their relationship is a triangle. They're at the base of the triangle and God is at the head. And if they try to grow together by getting closer to one another, they'll crush the whole thing. But if they try to grow closer to God, guess what? The whole triangle shrinks and they grow closer to one another. God is what makes the two flesh one. So we have to purify our intentions. For instance, there's a good uh, opportunity for the husband, let's say. A good job opportunity somewhere. But life is comfortable in San Diego. His wife doesn't want to go to Alabama. Is, has she purified her intention sufficiently to give him the right reason? Is she detached from the things of this world, or is she really attached? Likewise, the husband has been saving money, hoarding money to buy this $60,000 car. Does he really need it? So, look, this is a good chapter to meditate on. To meditate on. He listened to her. Should he have listened to her? Notice, he wasn't driven by lust. He wasn't driven by lust. So often I find in couples, one of the bigger problems is the man doesn't want to be a man. The woman is the man. You guys have to understand, unless you provide, you provide your wives or the women who are in your wives or the women who are going to be your wives with true godly leadership, like Jesus did, they're going to find it elsewhere. And where will they find it? In themselves. You are the head of the family. You're going to have to assume this role regardless of what the society out there says. And the head of the family doesn't mean you're the big boss. It has nothing to do with it. You're the one carrying the cross. That's what it means. So don't put it on her shoulders. You carry the cross. It means sometimes you have to, have, you have to show tough love. You have to help her become a saint. You really have to work at that. We, we have a great responsibility, and I think oftentimes this society wants to feminize the men and masculinize the women. Now I'm getting closer to a subject I talked to you about. I'm not going to go there, so I'm going to go back to the text. Okay, enough said. I think you got the picture. Let me go back here. There's one point I want to make to you about, about chapter about verse 4, and that is the following. Hagar became quickly pregnant, and she looked down upon Sarai. Now understand that expression, to look down. It's a lot stronger than what it means. Right? Um, and it's covenantal in its structure. Why? Because... Yahweh had told Abram, those who curse you, in particular look down upon you, I will curse. And in looking down upon his wife, she's essentially looking down upon him, even though she might not know that. So her reaction is unacceptable either. You understand? And in effect, the idea is as follows. She being the maidservant of Sarai, she's carrying... Her child, Sarai's child, not hers. But then she takes on upon herself the notion that, no, it is my child. I'm going to replace her. That's a covenant-breaking action. And she should not have done that. So you can see how any time we take upon ourselves an action that is outside God's will for us, the first fruit is going to be strife, jealousy, anger, things are breaking down, relationships, People are not growing in the virtues, right? 
doesn't matter if you're trying to attempt, you're trying to do something and you have monetary problems or you have difficulties. You build this, uh, you put this window and it breaks. You do it again and it breaks again. Do it again and breaks again. None of that is a problem. But when you are attacked in your growth in virtues, you have a problem. If something is preventing you from growing in virtue, something is leading you away, you have a problem. So there's a strife now between them, between Sarai and, and Hagar. And so Sarai said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. Why is, he, is she saying that? Because she says, I gave my slave girl to your embrace, meaning I gave her to you. No longer is she mine, she's now you. And she's thinking, the fact that she's looking down upon me is confirming her own anxiety, which is that she's gonna, he's going to replace her with someone else. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Notice, Sarai has a clear conscience. She doesn't see or think that she's done anything wrong. Because according to the cultural pattern of her time, what she was doing was right. But objectively speaking, from God's perspective, what she's doing isn't. But there are scales on her eyes. She can't see it. You see that? She cannot see that objectively speaking, there ought not be a third person involved in a marriage. I mean, a third human person. I'm not talking about God. There ought not be a third person involved in this relationship between the man and the woman. She doesn't see that. So her conscience is clear. You notice that? So often you hear people say, well, my conscience is clear. I'm doing according to my conscience. Well, wait a minute. That's not enough. I mean, it's good that you're doing according to your conscience. At least you're not trying to do something explicitly wrong. But that is not enough. Your conscience must be formed according to right reason. Meaning that your reason must be illuminated by the truth first. You know, you need to know the truth. And then your conscience must be conformed to that truth. And then you can act according to your conscience. So, you know, if it feels good, it's good. It's real bad. It doesn't work that way. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? you have any questions about what I just said? It's a very, really important point. Very subtle and hard to get. Hard to get until you see yourself doing it the first time. Then you have a good understanding of what I'm talking about. Until then, it's kind of abstract and it's hard to achieve or obtain or understand. Particularly if it's a subject or if it's something that has brought your attention which really shocks you or riles you or you, you think this is completely out there. And you harden your heart. You don't want to listen to it. I don't want to listen to it. Forget it. I got home. I'm tired. I want to relax. Uh, we have dishes to do. Ah, forget it, I'll do it tomorrow. Whatever, right? Leave me alone. Reaction, right? I, I, I keep, I'm completely ignoring my wife's problem, her concerns, uh, her day. There's so much going on in this expression, we have dishes to do, simply because I want to do what I want to do, and I will, in 30 seconds, come up with 42 reasons why I should do what I just said. I'm doing it according to my reason, but I'm wrong. Dead wrong. Right? So, one of the... One of the um, telltale signs that somebody is growing in the virtue and is really trying to live the faith is the following. When that person is presented with something that is contrary to, let's say, his wishes or desires, 
not contrary to the law of God, the moral law, not, not contrary to what God prescribes or teaches, but contrary to his understanding of things, he questions himself, not what he had just heard. Now you might think, oh, this is very complicated what I just said, and it doesn't happen that often. It happens all the time. You're having a discussion, and somebody says, we should go left. Left. And you've already decided, you've planned it, you worked on it, you sweated on it, you spent time on it. It's your field. You know it more than anybody else. You're the expert on the subject. You know everything needs to be known about it. And you've concluded after study, after prayer, after doing everything that you should do, that you must go right. That that's the right thing. And this person says, we should go left because broccoli grow left. He gives you a completely stupid reason why you should go left. Then you say, or let me explain to you. You spend time explaining to this person slowly and carefully why we should go right. And three minutes later, he's already he's got eyes glazed. He's going to start snoring in 30 seconds. He couldn't care less. And then he dismisses all the argument and says we should go left. It is then that virtue shows its true metal. I'll give you an, an example. I gave it to you before, but it's such a good example. St. Charbel. He was helping, Father Charbel was helping uh, the brothers to collect wood for, for an oven. They were cooking something, I don't remember what it was, maybe making bricks or whatever they had to do. And one of the monks had a rather um, um, let's just say a boisterous or Mediterranean temper. Right? And for whatever reason uh, he, he got upset with St. Charbel so much so that he said Something along the lines, if you keep on doing what you're doing, I'm just going to use you as wood for the heaven. He was really... St. Charbel dropped on his knees and said, May God give me the grace to obey you, brother. No, how could you say that to me? I'm a priest, you're a brother. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, crazy talk. It's so shocking coming from a brother. How could you say those? None of that. I mean, talk about something completely, completely unreasonable. I'm going to use you as wood for the oven. How ghastly. St. Charbel, may God give me... He drops on his knees. May God give me the grace to obey you, brother. That's a telltale sign that someone is growing in virtue. But if you hear something that grates you the wrong way and you find 40 reasons why it's wrong, you may be right, but you're not growing in virtue. If anything, you're going the other way. You understand? There is no loss. You can't grow in virtue without losing. You get it? This is hard for the guys especially. And if you're playing games on a computer, it's twice as hard because those games are conditioning you to win and win and win every time. And I'm telling you, you can't grow in virtue without losing. No way. I hope you're seeing it because pride is the first thing you have to go over. And you can't get over your pride until you lose. And lose and lose again, and again, and again, and again, and then some. Ah, you will be crushed. Yes, if you do it by yourself, you'll absolutely be, be crushed. But then God comes and says, I'll bear you on eagle's wings. Yeah, that's a very good point. Okay. But Abram said to Sarai, your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Notice his detachment. Notice his detachment. He's showing her once more 
I have not done this because I got plan B in mind. I'm not doing this to replace you by someone else. Nor have I done this driven out of lust because I want to you know, replace my, uh, my um, aging wife with a younger one. None of that comes into his mind. He says, she is yours. Do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she ran away from her. Okay, now. Notice what happens. She ran away from her, and when the angel finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, Shur is at the limit between Canaan and Egypt. So she was effectively trying to go back to her own land. She was running away, pregnant, all by herself. So the treatment must have been really harsh for her to run away. And he finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai. Notice the angel, the messenger, the messenger confirms that status. Slave girl of Sarai. Where are you coming from? Where are you going to? Now notice what she says. I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. Now, who's taking the blame here? When she said, I'm running away from my mistress. Who's taking the blame? She is. Not... My mistress is crazy. She's not. She wanted me to do this, and I was trying to do it, and then blah, blah, blah. Not a word of complaint about the treatment she received from Nothing. She takes on the blame. I am running away. See that? Yeah, she's a good woman. With her, with her faults, I, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. But she's not an evil person. She does not blame her Mistress, not a word. She takes on the blame. See? There's no reward if you're not willing to lose. Not going to happen. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. There you go. If you want to grow in a virtue, that's what you're going to do. Oh, you have a boss at work that is grating, that you don't like? Return to your boss and submit to him. Or there's this old aunt that comes and visits you, and she brings you those cookies you can't even eat. Eat the cookies. Or there's this guy driving ahead of you who's driving you nuts. Bless him. And drive behind him. Your mother tells you to do the dishes. Do the dishes. Your mother tells you, don't come home late. Don't come home late. There's no winning without losing. All these things are gifts from God to us. Every day. Every single day. He's given us all these gifts, but we tend to completely overlook them. Especially us guys, why? Because we want to win. We want to be the best. We want to be number one. We want to be who we want to be. We want to do what we want to do. It's our life. Nobody tells us how we live it. And on and on and on, the blah, blah, blah goes on. And the angel Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. Notice, your offspring. Talking to a woman. This is unprecedented. I will greatly multiply your offspring. Not Abraham's offspring. Your offspring. Why? Because she's going to return and submit to her. That's the reward. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat is not, does not fall on the ground and dies, it does not bear much fruit. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call his, him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Shmael. The Lord hears. That's the meaning of the name. 
He will be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. Be careful what you ask for. Now notice, it wasn't her fault. She was part of this whole system and that child is born. But this child is born out of the covenant and hence the consequence. Most often than not, God will reward us, bless us and our children, and God will punish us in our children. I've told you this many times. I walk around, I have seven kids, and some old man will look at me and say, you got seven kids? I say, yes. And he says, well, wait till they become teenagers. And my reaction, my initial reaction, gut fear reaction, is to simply say, how long have you been contracepting? Now, having youth is not an easy thing. I'll grant, I'll grant you that much. It's not easy because... The poor kids are trying to find themselves and they're bumping into grown-ups. And they want to act like grown-ups and they speak disrespectfully. They're not even aware of it. And on and on the list goes. But, fun, if you, but if you step back and these are the problems you have, you're really blessed. If these are all the only problems you have, uh, sort of showing you this kind of uh, involuntary disrespect, it wasn't their intention, and they're going up and downs and their, their, their mood is, is shifting constantly and, and this and that and that. It's wonderful. That's a blessing. But when I start being rebellious, when I don't want to listen to you, or I don't want to heed your advice, then you have a problem. God has intended for the family to grow together. That's His intention. You live by His covenant. He will bless you. That's a guarantee. He said it. I will bless you. Live by my covenant. I'll take care of everything. Despite, not despite, but with all your faults and with all your problems, with all your imperfections, I'll take care of it. I'll make it right. So as soon as somebody starts his life saying, oh, I'm going to marry him, I have two kids, and I've done my duty, went to war, and I'm done. He's already in trouble. He's in trouble. He's saying, God, you can, you can just take, you know, take a break. I'm going to take care of it. I'm the man. I'm the guy in charge. Or the woman says, oh, no, you know what? It's too hard for me. I can't think about being pregnant more than twice. I had those two kids. It's too difficult. I don't want any more. And the guy says, oh, sure, fine. She's the man. He's the woman. <laughs> Instead of applying tough love and saying, honey, we need to pray about it. Not, no, let's have 12 more. No, we need to pray about it. Have you asked God what God wants for you? You really think God will let you down? So Hagar does exactly as the angel instructs her, and she goes back. Notice obedience again. She doesn't dispute the matter. She doesn't tell him, how could you ask me to do this? This is crazy. This woman is crazy. I can't even think about going living with her. I'm just going to go nuts. None of that. She goes back and submits to her. And what happens? Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. You notice that? Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Why is that indicated here, 86? Because it is a precursor to what is going to happen. God now is going to wait a number of years Many more years before he comes back and tell him, Sarah is going to be pregnant. 13 years. She's going to be 99. That's why the name, the change of name from Sarai to Sarah. Because she laughed when she heard it. 
Now I'm gonna be now I'm gonna be able to Yeah. Now. And that delay is due to what? To what they had just done. The delay, the thirteen year delay, is due to the fact that they themselves have done what they've done. In our lives, our sins delay the blessings. Do you realize that? We're always, God, how come you don't do this to me? And how come you know? Well, our sins have a lot to do with it. Are we trying to live in the state of grace? Are we focusing on making sure we remain in the state of grace when we want to ask God for something? Are we trying to? Are we doing the best we can? All these matter for God. This is how we look. This is how we see that we're really serious about our faith and our relationship with Him. And it matters a lot to Him, quite a bit, the intention. That's why the act in itself is not as important as the intention behind the act. If all you did, if all you did, um, if let's say you did only one small thing, like for instance, uh, washing the dishes before your wife asks you or your mom asks you, if you see something on the floor, you pick it up. And every time you did it, you said, one small act of love for me, one big act of love for God. God will receive that little act and make it really huge. That's the way of St. Therese, a little child Jesus, right? It's this constant submission, the humility, the will to do someone else's will that shows how much we love God. And He, in return, will bless us. At the end of the day, all of Scripture is really simple if we knew how to love. But it's our imperfection in love that complicates Scripture. Scripture could have been titled, for the most part, apart obviously from the Gospels and the coming of our Lord, but even in what he said, Scripture could have, retold, could have been titled, Manual of What Not to Do When You Want to Follow the Lord. Let me show you the 522 ways that you should not follow when you're trying to follow the Lord. This is what it is most about. Showing us all the ways in which we fall, but more importantly, how the Lord continues to care for us. Even after we fell 522 times. Because He truly loves us, because He is truly our Father. All right, we have time for some questions. Yes, very good. The question is, uh, quite often when someone sees an angel, they fall on their face out of fright. In this case, she didn't. The Hebrew word used here is truly messenger. It could indicate an angel, angelic form. Could you get a human? Therefore, more than likely, the angel took on human form. He hid his angelic form. All right? Yes. Okay, let's start uh, first with the first question. Um, when I talk about surrogate mothers, I'm talking recently, right, with the phenomena of artificial insemination. The church recently, see, I have not studied the history of surrogate motherhood to know what they were doing in the Middle Ages or if, they, if the church had to rule over this during the lengthy period of time that happened, um, say, between the year uh, 100 and 1900, right? We haven't seen any, I don't remember seeing any of this before. I've not studied it. All I can talk about is modern times. That's, that's what I had in mind when I mentioned. It's a really good question, but I don't have an answer for you as far as any of the teachings of the church in the past. I don't know if it even happened before. Um, it probably it may have during the Middle Ages. Don't know. 
what I'm thinking about is more, more recently the phenomena of artificial insemination and surrogate mothers. And the church has spoken, obviously, against all these, uh, all these techniques. As far as Hagar is concerned, remember, everybody is under the no Noahic covenant. The covenant of Noah covers everybody. No one escapes the covenant of Noah. And one of the things is that the blessing that was given Abraham, where God said, I will curse those who curse you. That is the part that applies to, um, to Hagar when she looked down upon her mistress. Right? So in that case, it would be triggered. Okay? Yes. Like all of us under original sin, right? So the question is as follows. Hagar's son Ishmael was born, essentially, being this ass of a man who will be, who will, who will be against everyone, everyone will be against him. Right? And the question is, how is that particular um, condition is fundamentally different from the fact that we, all of us are born under original sin? Remember, the covenant is not applicable only to us. It affects our children very, very much, and then their children, and so on and so forth, down to the generations, whether in blessings or in curses. And that's just one case of it. Yeah. Get used to the fact that God looks at us as a family, and when we do before Him, has repercussion, has impact on our children. Okay? Very devious on the part of the devil to say, oh, no, don't worry. Whatever you do is just about you and God. You and Jesus. It affects nobody else. Just as an accident up on the 15 might slow down people who are, say the accident is up on the 78 and 15, and someone is driving in Rancho Bernardo, and he finds himself in a jam. He's got nothing to do with a jam. But someone upstream was driving like a maniac and got in an accident. And everybody downstream is affected. The same thing applies. Yeah? Yes? Okay, very good question. Um, what do we have to obey every time someone says something to us that is not in agreement with us? The answer is no. There are sure guides. Number one, you have to first conform your reason to that of the church. The church in this case will tell you someone is in need. Charity obliges you to do what it takes to take care of them. The example you gave is someone else's life is on the line. You don't play with it. You don't toy with it. Right? You can't do that. St. Charbel didn't, this brother didn't tell St. Charbel, I want to use this guy as wood for, uh, for fire. And St. Charbel went and knocked him down, brought him over, and told him, you have to obey. No, it was his life that was on the line. Very different. Right? Very, and then what he said was not, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to obey God who may be speaking through you. Again, it's not about obeying a human. It's about obeying God through the human and trusting that God will take care of the situation. Very different. But in this case, we know what we have to do. We have to call for aid as quickly as we can. So that doesn't apply. So let's not go to extremes. Most of the situations that occur in our life are much more mundane. Uh, pick up the, the, the table. Well, I just did it yesterday. Not my turn. It's my brother's turn. That's an example that might happen to us more. Uh, someone at work might get a, uh, a, uh, um, a promotion and you don't. Those types of things is where obedient is, obedience is the one that is regarded. And it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we can just do it while we're singing. You know? No, it's just hard. Make sense? 
Yes. I have a, the question is about the question, a man who was blind and they asked him, who did, who, who did, who sinned? His parents? And Jesus said, neither. His parents didn't sin. And the question, how do I reconcile this, what I just said? I had a whole uh, section on personal responsibility versus collective responsibility. And it isn't either or, it is absolutely both. In the new covenant, personal responsibility plays a huge role. It doesn't annul collective responsibility. All right? It doesn't take it away. But it plays a huge role. That Why? Because each one of us is a child of God. We become grafted onto Christ. We abandon our natural family in order to enter into the heavenly family. And we're all grafted into God. Right? Yet, we grow in glory in heaven as long as our children, children's children, go also to heaven. We are affected. So there is also collective responsibility. It is absolutely both. Right? So what Jesus was saying in this specific instance is that the fact that this man was blind was not due to any of the parents, but really, keep on reading, and you'll see it is due to glorify God. Right? The purpose, therefore, for this particular man was that his suffering was for the glorification of God. And that's when we enter into the mystery of redemptive suffering, which is new in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. Redemptive suffering did not exist in the Old Covenant. It had no meaning there. It only has meaning in the New Covenant. That is why it's really hard for us to say, oh, look at this person is suffering this way. He must be cursed. No, he may be a saint because his suffering is actually um, helping others to go to heaven. Yeah? Yes. Uh, listening to the voice, remember? Sin and salvation entered the world through the ear. Eve, so the question is, is there a reason why I said he listened to the voice, not the words? Right? Eve listened to the serpent. Our Lady listened to the Archangel Gabriel. So whenever you hear something that says, listen to the voice, he yielded his will to her. That's what is meant. He did as she wanted him to do. Okay? I said that in part it was due to the fact that they have done something which was really not according to God's will. So God simply delayed. Or they may not have fully known that. Abraham presumed, I mean, it's debatable whether Abraham should have known or not known. Now, as I said earlier, there are two aspects of sin. There is a subjective aspect and there's an objective aspect. The subjective aspect has to do with the subject. You may do something that you don't know is a sin. But objectively, as to what you are doing, as seen from God's perspective, it is sinful. So your ignorance, in a sense, saves you. But the sin is there nonetheless. And it has an impact. Yeah? That's why it is our duty. It's our duty to know the faith and know the teachings of the church. None of us is exempted from knowing the teaching of the Catholic Church. So all these people out there are contracepting. We say, oh, they don't know. Well, they're not off the hook. This is their duty as Catholics to know the teachings of the church. Have I answered your question? Yeah? Yes. So these, think of them this way. This might help because this is a really good point. When you see those things in life where things are happening and you have a tendency or you're tempted to say, I cannot believe that they're doing this, stop yourself right there. And instead of saying this, which is effectively an acknowledgement of powerlessness, there's nothing you can do about it, right? Turn it into something that is positive, you can do something about. And the way to do that is simply to say, okay, Jesus, 
what are you trying to tell me? Obviously, you just tap me on the shoulder. Something is bothering me, so that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm seeing something is bothering me. That's not right. I cannot see it by myself because I'm blind. You're making me see it. Why are you making me see it? Why? What is there for me? Right? What's the purpose? Okay? Just turn it around. So look at it as a gift. Never mind the other person. He's outside of your control. You can't do anything about it. Look at it as a gift from Jesus to you. He's giving you a gift right there. Now you need to find what it is. It's wrapped. You have to open the wrapping and look at it and say, okay, what, what, are you, what is it? So it could be he's giving you now the occasion to exercise, to exercise patience. He may be giving you the occasion to find peace in the middle of a troubled world. So that means you say a prayer, you, the prayer of serenity, right? Lord, grant me the will to, no, the wisdom to... Uh, well, first, yeah, to accept, to change the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can't change, the patience to bear the things I cannot change, and the wisdom to discern between them. It's a prayer by St. Uh, uh, Francis. Uh, no, actually, I think it's Fran- uh, St. Uh, Francis de Sales. Is it Francis? Is it Francis of Assisi? Well, he's a genius. So anyhow, maybe St. Francis. Okay? So, prayer of serenity. Or some other prayer. Or you say Hail Mary. Or whatever, right? God is talking to you. It's, you are in conversation with God throughout all of this. So what happens is if you turn around and say, Well, I can't believe. Blah, 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 you're so looking. You're talking with yourself. You cut Jesus out. You're just like, Jesus, hang on. You put the cell down. And now you're just talking to yourself. Don't do that. Just keep the cell up. And... and Okay, what is it? Why am I here? Exactly, absolutely. Lord, have mercy. It's a wonderful prayer. The Jesus prayer, calling upon the name of the Lord. Whatever the case may be, he's giving you, those, those are gifts. When you say, Lord, have mercy, or Lord, bless this person. Lord, let their guardian angel knock them off on their head and wake them up. Whatever, right? Every time you do this, you've done an act of, you have done an act of charity. Why? Because you've overcome your initial tendency of wanting to rule the world. And get everything fixed according to your will, which will become terrible. It's a nightmare, right? So we can always start by saying, thank God I'm not God, right? Just to remind yourself, I'm not God. It's not my job to fix the world. Then you have clamped down on your desire to yell, scream, and do all that stuff. So you're mortifying yourself. Then you've prayed for that person. That's an act of charity. You prayed for that person. That's an act of hope. You prayed for that person, that's an act of faith. Look what you've done in 30 seconds. And God goes, ka-ching. I'm keeping this for you in heaven. And on and on it goes, throughout your entire day. He's sending you those gifts. Think of it this way. And then you'll, you'll find peace. Ah, very good point. That's another excellent point you're bringing, Fanny. Initial reaction is either repulsion or attraction or some sort of emotion. That's the mirror. We tend to see the sins of others through our own sins. So, somebody's doing something wrong. For instance, he's littering. He threw something off his car. And you just... That's it. You go on for half an hour, 
about how people are terrible, they, you know, blah, 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 and on and on and on. Guess what? That's your problem. If it, if he, he basically managed to push a button, didn't he? That guy in front of you, or somebody just cuts in front of you and hits the brake, and you nearly slammed on him and had an accident, and then, and you go on for, right? He pushed the button, didn't he? Who, who's he? Who just pushed the button? Who do you think? Who just pushed the button? Yeah, the Lord. The Lord said, I'm sending you a gift. Watch. And you, this is a gift? How come it's a gift? And the answer is, St. Augustine, Lord, let me know myself that I may know thee. The more you know yourself, the more you know the Lord. He just sent you a gift. So if you went through the whole rampage all by yourself in the car, streaming bloody murder, by the time you're done, you can at least say, thank you, Jesus. I really needed to see this. And you probably have to show it to me again multiple times before I do something about it. Right? Yes. You know, it's a very good point you're bringing up. I don't know if we can simply make that separation between the old and the new. The reason is, some of the folks of the Old Testament are absolute saints. We know they're in heaven. Right? So they were also sustained by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Moses, for instance. So uh, Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees, tell them, don't you know, didn't you, haven't you read that God says, I am the Lord of the living of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in heaven. Right? They're saints. What, is, what, is, what blows our mind away is that there are saints without the sacraments. So, in effect, what we see in the Old Testament is a real beautiful display of God's mercy. And a sign of hope that through our prayer in the church today, others who are outside the church can get to heaven. Right? Now, what is the difference then? What we see in the New Testament isn't just a display of God's mercy. It's a display of God's magnificent mercy. Right? Because even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in heaven... As Jesus said about John the Baptist, who is the greatest of all the prophets, the least of the children of heaven is greater than thee. Meaning what? Those who, through the sacraments, avail themselves of the sacraments, achieves height of glory that are nearly impossible to achieve without them. Yeah? And that's the gift of Christ on the cross. And that's why he told them, priests, I mean, prophets and kings wish to see what you see and have not seen it. All right, why don't we end with a word of prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.